Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. We are pleased to announce that we are going to have legal expert uh, Marjorie Cohn to discuss what's going on. Another version, another to discuss what's going on with the COVID uh, crisis. And this instance, she's going to be talking about um, what's happening in with our sanctions against Venezuela and Iran and how that constitutes medical genocide. Um, Oops. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I'm waiting for her. Okay, there she is. Hello. Hi. Marjorie. Hi, Marjorie. Welcome to Block Talk Radio. We are so pleased to have you here. Um, well, thank you. I'm glad again. to be here. Oh, I I am so uh, totally impressed with you. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background to our audience about about you and your experience. You are a noted in, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get this together here. You're a noted expert in legal, all sorts of legal situations and uh, what you're really talking about, you've been a, um, I'm sorry, excuse me, we're going to edit this, don't worry. Uh, I seem to have lost part of this. Just bear with me because we're just recording and we will be able to edit. So, you said, there's a little bit of an of echo time. when I'm listening to you. Uh, it's, pro- it's probably my phone, okay? So just give me a second here. We will... This is my first time using this machinery, so I'm kind of, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of struggling with it. Uh, and uh, give me a second here. There we go. I had everything together, and now it is. Okay, so we will go back to this now, okay? So you, to tell our audience your background, you're a professor, professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. You taught from 91 to 16, and you're a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Uh, you have lectured, written, and provided commentary for local, regional, national, and international media. Uh, you've served as a news consultant for CBS News and a legal analyst for Core TV as well as a legal and political commentator on various other uh, media sources such as the BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, and Pacifica Radio. Uh, Marjorie Marjorie Cohen is the author of several books, Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang is Defied the Law, and you're the co-author of Cameras in the Courtroom, Television, and the Pursuit of Justice with David Dow, Rules of Disengagement for Politics and Honor of Military Defense, and you're an editor and contributor to the United United States and Torture, Interrogation, Incarceration, and Abuse. And your last one is Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. Um, one of your books was cited in a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Your articles have appeared in numerous journals, such as the Fordham Law Review, Hastings Law Journal, the Virginia Journal of International Law, Christian Science Moniker, Chicago 
Monitors to Chicago to Tribune, your contributing editor to Jurist and the National Lawyers Guild Review, and, and so many more. Um, you are truly a, a warrior for what we are dealing with now, a warrior for justice. And I just want to welcome you to the show. Uh, we've been doing, this is part of our series titled Not Dying for Wall Street regarding the COVID crisis. And you have today a very interesting uh, take on this particular issue, something that you um, refer to as medical, terror, medical terrorism. So with that, I'm going to let you introduce this. Go ahead. Tell us about medical terrorism. What do you mean by that? Medical terrorism is what the United States is doing to Iran and Venezuela in the midst of probably the worst pandemic in history. The U.S. maintains punishing sanctions against Iran and Venezuela because the U.S. doesn't like their governments and wants to forcibly change their regimes. And so these punishing sanctions, which are supposed to put pressure on the people to change their government, end up only hurting the people. And it's interesting because Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said that we're going to, we're going to slap these sanctions on Iran so hard that the people are going to rise up and, and overthrow the government. Well, actually, Janine, that's the same thing that the government, the U.S. government thought in 1960 when they slapped an embargo, which turned into a blockade against Cuba. Um, there was a secret oh, yeah. State Department memo that said that if we make life miserable enough for the people that they'll overthrow the uh, Castro regime. And, of course, uh, that was 1960. Uh, 20, let's see, 40, 60 years ago, is that right? 40 and 20, yeah. 60, 60 years ago. Yeah, and the Cubans still have not overthrown their government. So it's it's a losing strategy, plus it's illegal. Forcible regime change is illegal. Right, it is. And you've also written that basically these unilateral coercive measures violate both UN and what you call the OAS charters. Um, could you speak to that? And also a violation of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause. So could you explain to our audience what each one means? Especially, let's start with the Supremacy Clause. Well, the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution says that treaties shall be the supreme law of the land, and that means that when the United States ratifies a treaty and becomes a party to that treaty, that becomes part of U.S. domestic law. So we're not just talking about international law out in the stratosphere. These treaties are part of U.S. law. And so the sanctions, which are called unilateral coercive measures, because they're unilateral, the United States is imposing them by itself without the uh, agreement of the U.N. Security Council, which the U.N. Charter requires, um, violate the U.N. Charter for that reason, and also the Charter of the Organization of American States. Um, under the U.N. Charter, the protection of health 
is a stated goal of the UN Charter, and member countries of the UN organization are required to take actions that promote health. And yet the United States is doing just the opposite, um, exacerbating the suffering of the Iranian and Venezuelan people in the midst of the pandemic. And the Charter of the Organization of American States, or OAS, prohibits any country from intervening directly or indirectly in the internal or external affairs of another country. And that includes any type of interference against the political, economic, or cultural system. Um, No state can use coercive economic or political measures to force the sovereign will of another state, and yet that's exactly what the United States is doing with its forcible regime change strategy. Let's go back to the the UN, uh, United Nations Charter, because you said that this is interfering with medical assistance. could you explain to the audience briefly how that's happening, how the, the sanctions are hurting medical efforts to save lives during the COVID crisis? Well, first take Iran, um, where as of April 8th, Iran had 60, oh, 64,500 cases of COVID-19 and almost 4,000 deaths. And it is undisputed that Trump's sanctions against Iran Iran are a primary cause of these extremely high casualties. Um, They affect Iran's ability to contain the outbreak. It leads to more infections and uh, the possible spread of the virus beyond Iran's borders to Afghanistan, where the U.S. has troops. Um, And also there is a... um, uh, Let's see. Um, the U.S. Uh, had had imposed sanctions, uh, basically an, an effective economic blockade of the energy, banking, and finance sectors, and um, the targeting of basic food and medicine. Well, the U.S. now has imposed imposed additional sanctions on Iran during this pandemic, uh, weaponizing the coronavirus. And uh, Iran's foreign minister calls this the sanctions economic terrorism and the refusal to lift the sanctions during the pandemic medical terrorism. Right, because in other words, they can't get access to enough supplies and medicines because of the sanctions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, you know, you also mentioned the Charter of the Organization of American States, where we can't interfere in any way. And I think a lot of Americans don't really understand that. Now, looking down further, and you also mentioned how this collective punishment through these sanctions violates the Fourth Geneva Convention. Could you speak to that, please? Um, Yes. Collective punishment means um, the people are punished collectively for um, the actions of their government. And collective punishment under the Fourth Geneva Convention is a war crime. Um, It says that no civilian can be punished for an offense he or she has not personally committed. And reprisals against these people are prohibited. And yet the United States is punishing the people of Iran and Venezuela for the actions of their governments. And this is illegal collective punishment. I wonder how much of this extraordinary uh, collective punishment is related to racism. 
because both groups are people of color, racism and religious bigotry. Um, I wonder how much that is attributed to them. Because Iran is a Muslim, uh, you know, Muslim country, and I'm particularly sensitive to it because I'm Jewish, and you know, again, there seems to be less credence attached to non-Christian groups. Uh, and then Venezuela, again, they're people of color. Um, not to mention also the, the how basically there are certain resources that we want to get our hands on also. But that's another interview, I'm sure. Um, you also mentioned how forcible regime change violates the ICCPR. And if you could go over what the IC, the Internet, which is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and you wrote that basically it recognizes self-determination as a human right and to quote you, quote, guarantees all peoples the right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Um, how could you speak to that a little more about forcible regime change and how it violates this agreement? Um, yes. Uh, no country has the right to forcibly change the regime of another. And as you said, you quoted the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a binding treaty the United States has ratified. It, is, um, it, it grew out of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which Eleanor right. Roosevelt had a big part in, in crafting um, after World War II. And, uh, and um, Idris Jazeri, who is the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Negative Impact of Sanctions, um, said coercion, whether military or economic, must never be used to seek a change in government in a sovereign state. And um, a letter was sent to uh, Donald Trump, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo by more than 200 legal professionals and organizations, including, I signed the letter, including my organizations, the National Lawyers Guild, the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, and the American Association of Jurists. And in that letter, we, to Trump, Mnuchin, and Pompeo, we wrote, your administration's disapproval of the government of a foreign state provides no legal justification for policies and actions intended to deprive residents of the targeted state of necessaries as a means of forcing a change to a regime more to the liking of the United States. And this is not a new thing, Janine, I'm sure you know. Um, the CIA has overthrown democratically elected uh, governments for years um, in Iran, in Chile, in, in Guatemala, they've been trying like crazy to overthrow the regime of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, uh, most, with, with punishing sanctions, um, and most recently um, a re indicting uh, Maduro on, uh, on uh, charges relating to narco-terrorism, and the U.S. is sending Navy destroyers to the Caribbean on the pretext of a counter-narcotics operation. Venezuela is not a major player in, uh, in the drug operations. Uh, Colombia, wow. who is a very close ally of the United States, is. And the sanctions against Venezuela, um, according to the New York Times, have contributed to the largest economic collapse in a country outside of war, at least since the 1970s. And uh, in February, Venezuela filed a complaint against the United States in the International Criminal Court, calling the sanctions crimes against humanity. Oh, well, they are. And, and I'm, yeah, I am very aware of that. Uh, 
a lot of the um, uh, refugees we've been receiving from Central America in particular and South America, they are climate change refugees that have been driven out by various corporate interests that our government favors and, you know, such as energy companies polluting their water sources and so on. So, yeah, very, very aware. Um, this is, you know, again, we, we don't expect the Trump administration to do the right thing. They, they're they pretty adamant. Um, we can I, expect I would them to say, do the wrong thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. But what legally could we do to hold them accountable? You know, what could we do, you know, legally in the courts to basically make them follow the law? I mean, is, is, is Trump and his administration, are, can we get charges of criminal malfeasance against them or uh, negligent homicide? I mean, there's been a lot of stuff thrown out there. Is, is there any any recourse for us at all? Well, that's a good point, and many people have talked about that. The International Court of Justice actually ruled in a case that Iran brought uh, in. Uh, the International Court of Justice is is uh, the judicial arm of the UN system. It's it's not a criminal court the way the International Criminal Court is, and and uh, they uh, awarded what are called provisional measures. They haven't decided the merits of the case about the sanctions, but they said that uh, the U.S. should uh, should suspend the sanctions, which of course the U.S. thumbs its nose at the World Court, the right. ICJ. Um, but also. Um, there is something that we can do, and that is to pressure our congressional representatives um, to end the sanctions against Iran and Venezuela. Almost everyone in Congress has supported these sanctions. And uh, very recently, two members of Congress, Ilan Omar and uh, Rashid Tlaib, introduced a bill in the House of Representatives called the Congressional Oversight of Sanctions Act. It's H.R. 5879, and it would provide some oversight, congressional oversight of sanctions, so that the executive, the president, doesn't just have a blank check to slap sanctions on any country he wants for any reason. And it would require a report on why sanctions were chosen rather than another tool to address the emergency, whether the sanctions are unilateral, and if so, why no other country has imposed them, and what are the requirements for lifting the sanction. The sanctions, right. and so I think that one thing people can do is to pressure their representatives, their congressional representatives, to sign on mm-hmm. to the Omar Tlaib HR five eight seven nine. Also, there is a violation of the International Executive Economic Powers Act, which is what Trump used um, to uh, to slap the sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, the most recent ones, um, because that. International Executive Economic Powers Act only allows the president to impose sanctions after he makes a good faith declaration that the targeted country presents an unusual and extraordinary threat to the United States. Well, neither Venezuela nor Iran present any threat to the United States. And in fact, Iran, <laughs> Iran was being contained very well um, and not mm-hmm. developing a nuclear program, and that was that was verified by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency of the UN uh, under the Iran deal that Obama uh, had participated in crafting. And one of the first things that Trump did when he took office, trying to neutralize and, and erase everything Obama did, um, was to right. pull the U.S. out of that Iran deal as well as the climate agreement and many other things, uh, just dead 
devastating. And then uh, once once uh, he pulled out of the agreement, then Iran said, well, we're not bound by it anymore. And they started enriching uranium. And uh, Trump said, well, we're re- reimposing the sanctions, these punishing sanctions um, against uh against Iran. And uh, so so right down the line, Janine, every time there is anything progressive that Obama did, and I was critical of Obama during his, uh, during his well, presidency. I, I wrote articles criticizing I, his I, I drone surveillance, etc. I, I was too. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> right. Keep but going. Trump is, is uh, trying to decimate any progress Obama made, and in so doing, um, he has become a danger not just to people in the United States, but to people all over the world. And now, particularly with his delayed response, unconscionable delay in, in responding right. to the pandemic, um, sitting on it for two months in denial. He's still in denial. He's still talking about yeah. things are looking good. We have plenty of ventilators. We have plenty of beds. We have plenty of tests. No. We have plenty of masks. We're going to open the economy. And he's playing to his base, um, who are in denial right. that we're really in the middle of a plague, uh, oh, which we no. are. Yeah, and the nurses have already basically blown the whistle on that, especially Nurses United. You know, I, as I'm listening to you, one of the things that becomes very evident is, you know, Trump takes this unitary executive model to the extreme with the help of, you know, A.G. Barr. And, uh, you know, again, my understanding is that when it comes to diplomacy, while the executive branch may lead, all those trees, are, it still has to have congressional approval. So, again, where is Congress when an executive runs rampant? That's a really good, uh, good, good question, Janine. Um, of course, the Senate is uh, has a Republican majority, and so right. over 200 bills that the House has, the democratically controlled House, has passed, um, most of which will probably make our lives much better. Um, the ones I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not familiar with every one of them, but but uh, by and large, um, are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, and so he won't let those uh, won't won't let those go forward. But um, when uh, when uh, two members of the House uh, try to to uh, inter- introduce a bill, um, it's important to get co-sponsors and uh, and and set that up because it is. Uh, possible and hopefully probable that the Democrats will retake the Senate um, in November, and then uh, some real progress could be made. And of course, the presidency uh, also must uh, change hands in order to make any progress as well. Right. And I guess what I'm looking at really is holding both parties accountable and demanding that they actually fulfill their role, regardless of their own partisan views. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, when they're not doing that, they're at least guilty of misfeasance. Perhaps they're doing premeditation malfeasance. And there has to be a way we can hold them accountable. Uh, right now, it just seems like all we can do is say, well, we'll vote you out or we'll beg them. You know, there needs to be, and I'm sure there is, you know, I know there are such categories as misfeasance and malfeasance, you know, while in office, and they're not used. And I guess. My question is, what would it take to bring these charges and against including members of Congress and hold them accountable? What? How can we do this? Yeah, bringing bringing lawsuits against members of Congress for not doing their job is an iffy proposition. Um, I think that pressure from their constituents is the thing that uh, Congress members respond yeah. to 
the most, and that means calling, writing, emailing, um, writing op-eds, uh, texting, mm-hmm. making, uh, making clear uh, our demands mm-hmm. in any way we can with our uh, elected officials. And that includes, and this is, of course, um, as you say, uh, a sin of the Democrats as well as the Republicans in Congress, mm-hmm. and that is the military budget, which is right. just incredibly bloated and unnecessary and if you think about all of that money that could go billions of dollars that could go for health care and education and and infrastructure and helping people in this country um, it just boggles the mind that they feel that they're so cowed and this is this is most people most congress uh, members in both parties um, whenever the president asks for uh, a an increase in the military budget they don't want to be they you know they don't want to be perceived as not supporting the troops and yes. uh, and so they just vote for it over and over and oh. over and uh, and of course you know who yeah. that's enriching the defense contractors who are making yeah. the bomb making the bombers right. making the and, drones and and, um, and, uh, and yeah speaking i mean here you know i'm in st louis my colleagues are in florida and i was a ferguson activist and white ally and we've done all those things. We have risked arrests. We have taken over malls. And Senator Blunt couldn't care less. You know, and it's it's really vile. I, I really do think, and I, I hear what you're saying. I really do think we do need legal recourse, not necessarily just lawsuits, but I mean a way to actually recall and kick them out of office when they violate their oath of office. I think that's what I'm speaking to. But um, we have four minutes left, and what I'd like to do, because, again, a a lot of people out there, they aren't as astute as you are, obviously, and they they don't always make the – the teacher in me is coming out. They don't always make the connection between what you're calling medical terrorism, once again, and the sanctions, the idea that the sanctions cut off a lot of things, including – money, including foodstuffs that might be in trust by including medicine and that, that, that pipeline. Could you kind of explain it and kind of bring it together and summarize it so that the average person could understand it? I think that would be helpful. Um, yes. Well, the sanctions that the United States has imposed, that the U.S. government, and, and Trump's not the first president to impose sanctions on Iran, but he's certainly taken it to a new level, um, have uh, have hurt the people of Iran. They've only hurt the people of Iran. And um, they are... <clears throat> um, they are are uh, unable to get uh, medicines. They're unable to get food. They're unable to get things they need to to fight this this virus. Um, like humanitarian leaders. imports, vital medicines, medical equipment, yeah. and uh, and so the that's why the uh, prime minister of Iran said that the U.S. refusal to lift the sanctions um, during the pandemic constituted medical terrorism. And also another thing that we should uh, we should keep in mind is that Iran and Venezuela both went to the International uh, Monetary Bank, uh, I'm sorry, the International Monetary Fund, um, right. to, to um, 
get a loan, and this is something that the IMF is supposed to be doing, um, get a loan to of five, $5 billion to help it fight the coronavirus. And uh, the Wall Street Journal said that uh, the U.S. blocked, the U.S. controls the, uh, the IMF, blocked Iran's request and in, in, in indirectly, if not directly, blocked Venezuela's request as well because the U.S. has led the charge in attacking a lawfully elected uh, president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, and uh, and instead recognizing Juan Guaido and nobody who came out of nowhere and the CIA has been grooming him and other U.S. allies have jumped on board and so the IMF said, well, we don't know if we have jurisdiction because we don't really recognize Maduro as the president of Venezuela and so um, it's it's very likely that the U.S. is behind the uh, IMF's denial of this uh, this loan to Venezuela, which it needs so desperately um, to fight the virus, and that's also economic terrorism. Yeah, it is. It is. We're at the almost at the thirty-minute mark. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say? We do have additional time if you wanted. Um, yes, I would urge people to uh, write to the White House. Write op-eds, write letters to the editor, pressure your Congress members. And people may not want to write op-eds, but a letter to the right. editor is not hard to get published. You just peg it to a news story or an opinion piece in your local newspaper and keep it under 150 words. And if your letter doesn't get published, you will help other letters from the same point of view get published because they count up how many letters there are from, from each uh, perspective. So there are many things that people can do, and joining together and demonstrating, maybe it didn't uh, convince your senator in Missouri, but maybe some of the congressional representatives. Um, certainly there was, uh, there, 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 uh, there was a lot that happened in response to uh, what happened in Ferguson. I mean, it really raised... Um, oh, yeah, it it yeah. raised consciousness, led to, to Black Lives Matter, along with other killings of yeah. uh, of people of color, mainly you know Most black definitely. males. And so I I wouldn't say well you know it was a failure. I think that all of that we've, we've well, got well, to maintain no. the movement. As Bernie Sanders yeah. said, he's he's out of the race, but the movement goes on. Right, and I, I, it wasn't a failure. It was just that it fell on deaf ears of Roy Flint. We actually got quite a bit accomplished. Um, right, and right. You know, once again, and and again, it is about the movement, no doubt about it. That's something that basically leaders in both parties are having a great difficulty comprehending. Uh, right. But they're going to find out eventually. They are. It's, it's not me or you. It's us. Right. And is, is, is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I think people need to, you know, well, there is something since I have the platform, and that is that um, I was a Bernie supporter all along, still am, died in the wool, both elections, and uh, I... <laughs> I uh, um yeah and I uh communicate with a lot of people on the left and there is so much disillusionment among people on the left um that I am afraid that just as in 2016 a lot of Bernie supporters are either going to sit out the election um vote for a third party candidate or even some of them uh, who are so critical of Biden because he's such a weak candidate uh, with a less than stellar record are going to vote for Trump. 
um, and uh, because they're under the illusion that he's more of an isolationist in foreign policy, although he's certainly done his share of bombing and droning since he and killing civilians right. since he came into office. And so I right. think it's really important for people to keep their eye on the ball and look at Trump's record. Look at what he has done. Look at how many people he has hurt. Um, and yes. the bottom line, Janine, is that uh, <laughs> if Trump is reelected. Uh, he is going to craft a Supreme Court, seven to two, right-wing majority for decades to come, no more right to right. abortion, no more dreamers, no more right to apply for asylum, and right. any prayer we have of really tackling climate change out the window. And if people want to be responsible for that, then sit it out, uh, vote for uh, a third-party candidate, or, or vote for Trump. I understand. Well, I again, I thank you so much. Um, this has been wonderful. Um, like I said, we're at that end point. My my colleague is going to help edit this and edit some things out. Uh, and hopefully I did this correctly because, again, when it comes to technology, I'm a bit of an idiot. So, um, and that, no, seriously, this is the first time I've done that. So, um, you know, we'll just, and I do thank you for your patience and thank you for appearing, Marjorie. You are truly a national treasure. Thank you so much, Janine. I really appreciate your work and uh, I enjoyed the interview. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. Uh-huh.